There was a story of a man who went in for his annual checkup and after a couple of days received a phone call from his physician. The doctor said, I'm afraid I have some bad news for you. The man asked, oh, what's the news? The doctor replied and said, you only have 48 hours to live. So that's the bad news, the shocked patient replied. The doctor continued, well, I'm afraid I have even worse news. The patient responded again and said, what could be worse than what you've already told me? The doctor responded and said, well, I actually have been trying to call you since yesterday. Well, funny as this story may be, life does come with many surprises. Some may be pleasant ones, but most of the time, we don't even want to entertain those surprises that come our way. You see, whenever we face those surprises, we in our human nature have a variety of responses whenever we are suddenly faced with life's troubles and afflictions. To many, the response is fear because of the uncertainty of how we are to face the matter. For others, we can easily be discouraged or feel miserable and helpless. Or for most of us, most of the time, we may feel frustrated, upset, and even feel insecure. Thoughts come to our minds such as, what have I done to deserve this kind of situation? Have you also had times whenever you find yourself in circumstances that cause you to wonder and perhaps ask, where is God in all of this? Perhaps it's when you look into your messy and complicated family situation. Maybe it's that experience of yours when you lost your loved one. Maybe it's that financial difficulty that until now, you couldn't figure out how to make ends meet. Maybe it's that rebellious child that you have been praying for for a long time. Maybe you're going through an illness or a condition for quite some time right now. Maybe it's a crisis or some painful experience that you are working on. Or perhaps it's just being persecuted for your faith. Matters that make us wonder if we have actually been lost from God's love. Knowing and living in the reality that we will encounter troubles and afflictions, how can we pursue living a life that is secured and assured? I'm sure you would agree with me that the best person to learn from would be someone who have actually had personal experiences and can understand what it means and what it takes to actually endure and remain hopeful and still be resilient even in the midst of encountering his own share of troubles and afflictions. And this person that comes to mind is no other than the Apostle Paul. You see, from the time that he became a believer, he pursued God's call for him. He faithfully dedicated his life to honor, to serve, to make God known. Nevertheless, from that point on in his life, he actually never ran out of difficulties that he had to face and constantly have to deal with. He had to face a lot of opposition from government leaders, religious leaders, false teachers. He encountered persecutions because of his faith. He was stoned. He was put on trial. He got imprisoned. He almost died because of a shipwreck and he endured his thorn in the flesh. Yet in all of these experiences, what we see of Paul is that he remained steadfast. He never faltered in his faith. 
And that is why we can find encouragement in His life. And we can also be prepared whenever we face our own troubles and afflictions by the time that they arise. And so for our time together, we will be looking into a familiar passage that Paul actually wrote from the book of Romans. We will be looking into chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. It is a popular go-to verse by many and is in fact often referenced as kind of the mountain peak or the climax of this letter, which primarily focuses on the assurance and the security of the salvation of the believer. To give a bit of a context, prior to these verses, what Paul actually expounded is to give a full view of God's plan of salvation. He wanted to exposit and make clear the power and the message of the gospel. On top of that, he also wrote about how suffering and tribulation are part of our broken and sinful world, but at the same time, how God uses it as part of our spiritual journey to maturity. And so in light of all of this, Paul's desire for the Roman believers, and even for us today, is that we will also experience and recognize the power of the gospel message in our life, especially in times of trouble and our affliction. Now, one thing you, we may note here is as we move into the text is how Paul will actually utilize the rhetorical approach. He will be using a lot of rhetorical questions to stimulate thinking and add emphasis and move us readers to reason and to understand and drive his point about the matter. And so Paul here is going to ask and answer seven of them. And our goal is to drive home and highlight three of God's characteristics in light of the eternal security of our salvation and how these characteristics of God can also help us to live a life that is assured and secured, even in the midst of the afflictions that we will be facing in this life. Now let's begin with verses 31 to 32, as Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Paul begins by asking, what then shall we say of these things? Paul was basically referring to the inevitable that we will be encountering. There are the burdens, the struggles, the, the tribulations, and he says, in light of those realities, what would be our response? How are we supposed to uh, work in them and treat them? You know, when we battle and deal with our times of afflictions, there are many times that we can feel that we are alone in the battle. At other times, perhaps we feel disheartened or hopeless and be consumed by the thought that this ordeal will end up in defeat. But Paul continues to, toward the next phrase, which says, if God is for us, who can be against us? See, this statement is better translated, since God is for us, who can be against us? To put it in another way, Paul is saying, since God is certainly for us, our assurance is that God will be with us. We will never be alone in our time of affliction. 
And though there can be different factors that can go against us in our troubled times, since God is most powerful, since He is sovereign over all and He is for us, then we can be confident because ultimately, God always wins. So continuing on with Paul's rhetoric in verse 32, it says, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with him also freely give us all things. You know, sometimes when we encounter difficult times, it may also tend to highlight the things that are lacking in our life. It can reveal our areas of need, our areas of struggle, and all the more making us feel the pressure of being inadequate or weak in handling our tough situation. And therefore, the implication of verse 32 is that if God has given up His most prized possession so He can make available for us the priceless gift of our salvation, how can He not also generously give or provide whatever we may need that will be good for us in times of our difficulty or misery when He has given us the best for our eternity? So herein lies the first truth or principle that we can learn about God's character in light of our salvation that can secure us even in time of our affliction. And that is that God is gracious and He provides for us generously. In light of our salvation, we can be secured in our time of affliction because God is gracious and He provides for us generously. When God so graciously did not spare Jesus Christ to be given up and to die on our behalf for our benefit without even us asking for it or deserving of it, it shows forth that God is indeed for us. Therefore, if God can choose to not withhold what is priceless, what costs Him the most, and He can choose to give it up for our good, then it only makes a sense that He could also graciously and generously not withhold other needs that we may have or whatever He knows will be good for us in our time of affliction or difficulty. It's like this. If I'm able to gift someone with a brand new set of suit and tie, then it wouldn't make sense why I wouldn't want to give it together with a hanger, right? If I could spend that much to be able to gift someone Uh, that beautiful brand new suit, it only would make sense that I would include a hanger that is best to come with it. In the same way with our uh, life in Jesus Christ, if God can give Jesus His most precious possession, then He would also be graciously and generously give whatever that will be coming together with that new life as well. If I may put it in another way, Like many of you parents who also have kids going back to school this week, it must have been also a hectic week also for you guys this past two weeks of preparation. And as classes are about to kick in, we know schooling is way more than just enrolling them, right? There will be school supply needs, perhaps some electronic or gadget upgrades. Perhaps there will also be some need in terms of uniforms, new shoes, bags, 
Uh, even transportation is now a thing after more than two years. And as a parent, the fact that you have spent that much to enroll them and you realize that all of this are part of what they need to pursue that thing that they have been enrolled in, wouldn't it make sense that you would actually give whatever is necessary as well? That you would actually provide as well and not withhold from them what they will need for that endeavor. In the same way as well, that when Jesus Christ was given for us, God's most precious possession for our eternity, of course, God can also give what is necessary for this life. But what if, for example, like I now have a two-year-old and a five-year-old going to school, and for example, one day they asked me, Daddy, we need a new iPad and a stylus. We need that so that we can learn to write and learn to draw and participate in class. Should I give them one? Well, the answer is, of course not. For one, I couldn't afford that. Uh, but because the reason is all that they need is just really a pen and a paper. And that should be enough for them to pursue what they are called to do. You see, sometimes, or perhaps many times, the reason that we miss out and we don't recognize what God has graciously provided for us is because we expect God to respond to us based on our expectations rather than trusting Him and having a humble heart to recognize and simply appreciate what God has bestowed and that we can trust Him that whatever He will provide is always going to be enough and is going to be the best. I like the story of this rich executive who once announced to his church one morning that he was going to give up all that he owned and he wanted to start living a life in faith towards God for everything that he needs. And so what he did is that he sold everything he gave to the poor and he moved to a rented home uh, downtown. And so on his first night, he prayed to God that God will provide for him some food. So the next morning, he went outside to check the porch and there was no food. Well, the day went and at night, he again prayed to God for food. And the next morning, he checked. Guess what? There's nothing. Well, another night, he prayed again saying, Lord, if you do not feed me, I will surely die of starvation. Well, the next morning, he again checked and realized there was nothing. Then in a near panic brought on by his hunger, he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, I have put my faith in you. Why are you ignoring me like this? After he uh, cried out that prayer, somehow he got a sense that he somehow had to go back out of the porch and check again. And so he did so, and as he was looking around, he had an urge to look up. And upon looking up, he saw a very large sign on the building across the road and there was this bold letters, a tarpaulin that says, workers wanted and lunch will be provided. You see, my friends, take it to heart 
that our God is a very generous God. Remember every day His most precious gift to us, that is Jesus Christ, and realize that He would ensure to also provide you everything else based on what He knows is best according to His ways and according to His time. Now moving on, let's continue in verses 33 to 34. Paul writes, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. You see, one of the things I realize is that one of the source of our troubles or the burdens that we face is basically related to our struggle with our sinfulness and our weaknesses. It is no secret that all of us have our fair share of failures and shortcomings because the reality is that we are all a work in progress and that we still battle with our sinful nature every day. In fact, Satan, identified being the accuser of God's people, every day tries to distract, disturb us with the very valid accusations because he knows our sinfulness. He knows the things that have defiled our life because he also is aware and he also knows even our darkest and deepest secrets. We can be haunted, therefore, by our past, by our mistakes, and often this leads us to feel the burden of guilt, the burden of shame, which can get in the way of our peace and our joy. And sometimes, it is a reason why we ourselves could not even forgive ourselves for some of the wrongs that we have done. You see, Paul knew that when we allow our struggle with our sinfulness or our weaknesses to take the best of us, it can shackle us. It can rob us of our freedom to live in obedience and experience the fullness of the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers us through the finished work of the cross. So in verse 33, Paul first says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? We will see here that Paul used a lot of uh, legal terms. The first one, the term charge. Charge simply means uh, be giving an accusation. And we see the term God's elect here, which refers to God's chosen people. Or simply put, they are the believers in Christ. You see, the implied answer to this rhetorical question is basically no one. Why? See, Paul says, because it is God who justifies Here's another legal term which means a person to be declared righteous. In other words, when a person is declared righteous, he is dismissed of all accusations. And therefore, no one can bring any accusation that will stand. In other words, God being the divine supreme court, he has the final say. Therefore, while Satan or the people around us may accuse us, may press charges against the believers because of our sins or perhaps bringing up our past. Nevertheless, this gets nowhere with God because ultimately all sin is against Him. And He has fully acquitted us when He provided Jesus Christ, His Son, to pay the penalty of our sins. Therefore, we can be fully confident that our sins are no longer held against us and God has completely forgiven us of all of our sins. 
Therefore, Paul continues to reinforce this in verse 34. He says, who is he who condemns? This term to condemn basically means to bestow punishment. See, Jesus Christ is God's appointed judge, and he is the one who has the right to actually condemn. But at the same time, what we see is that he is the one in whom each believer has identified themselves by faith. That is why in the same verse, Paul elaborates four things about what Christ did for the believer, even being the judge himself. He died to remove our guilt. He rose from the dead to affirm that he has overcome death. He, the judge, ascended at the right hand of God to represent us. And finally, he constantly intercedes to speak on our behalf to the Father for our welfare. Now, all that to say, and the point being that if Jesus, the appointed judge himself, did all of this for us, certainly he will not condemn his own who are in him by faith. And so here lies the second principle or truth about God's character in light of our salvation that can secure us even in our time of affliction. And that God is forgiving and he pardons us completely. In light of our salvation, we can be secured in light of our affliction because God is forgiving and he pardons us completely. In other words, just as how God forgave all of our sins and cleansed us of all our unrighteousness, when we put our trust in him, he is still the same God that can bestow forgiveness to us whenever we mess up so that we can be in good terms with him, to be in good fellowship with him. And when he forgives, he does so completely and absolutely. There was a story of a couple who was already married for 15 years and then began to be having more than usual disagreements. And so they wanted to make their marriage work and so they agreed to an idea that the wife had. And so what they agreed upon was that for one month, they planned to drop a slip in a fault box. And so the boxes would provide a place to let the other person know about the daily irritations that they cause the other. And so the wife was very diligent in her efforts, and he tried, she really tried to write down everything that she observed. She wrote down about the husband leaving the jelly top off the jar. He wrote, she wrote about him leaving the wet towels on the shower floor. She wrote about him leaving dirty socks on the hamper, and so on and so forth. And until the end of one month after dinner, they exchanged boxes. And the husband opened the, the, the box and reflected upon the things that he had done wrong that the wife wrote to him. And then, though it's the wife's turn to open her box. And when she began reading, the 30 sheets of paper that she was able to see, they were all the same. And the only message that each slip has was, I love you. See, like that husband, our God is also a forgiving one, one who does so completely, one who no longer keeps our records of wrongdoings and shortcomings, one who forgives and never brings things up again against us. 
and one who is always open to give us a brand new start. In fact, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 tells us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, does that mean we can just sit, sin and do all what we want and just ask for forgiveness again and again and again? Well, Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 tells us, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? You see, God's mercy and graciousness in bestowing forgiveness is never a license for us to sin. Instead, it must lead us to repentance and obedience. I remember of this story of a group of teenagers who were enjoying a party until someone suggested that they go to a certain hangout place just to have a good time. Well, one of the friends expressed and said, you know what, guys? I'd rather you guys take me home. My parents don't approve of that place. Well, one of the friends sarcastically responded, are you afraid your father will hurt you? Well, the other friend replied and said, no, I'm afraid I might hurt my father. You see, this young person understand the principle that a true child of God who has experienced the love of God will have no desire to sin against that love. Similarly, now that we have been declared righteous, our desire must be to live accordingly and to keep a right relationship with our Heavenly Father so that our fellowship with Him will not be hindered. We can live free and secured with nothing to hide and no longer be enslaved again from sin and its consequences. Now let's move along to the last section of chapter 8 from verses 35 to 39. It reads this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, in our human nature, our general instinct is that we have associated experiencing comfort and convenience as a direct manifestation of being loved, right? It's natural that when we feel good, we feel loved. That is how we most often evaluate our life and our experiences. However, for us, the believer, we were told that hardships are a given fact of life. In fact, we must expect them. And the tricky part is they come in different forms, different sizes, different degrees of intensity, and they come at times that you least expect them to arrive. And so the hard reality is you and I understand that when one goes through hard times, 
it is almost an automatic response or reaction to feel unloved, to somehow feel being abandoned, isn't it? And Paul was one who was certainly understood this feeling or emotion because of how he has faced a lot of this kind of hardships. In fact, Paul enumerated seven things in verse 35, all of which he himself have personally experienced and have endured throughout his years of serving God as a missionary. And so Paul's final rhetoric in asking, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It was a way to affirm the fact that our experience in going through hardships, they actually do not define, nor do they indicate a lesser degree of God's love. In other words, no matter how we feel, regardless of our circumstance, they do not affect, nor do they necessarily reflect a discrepancy in the degree of God's affection for us. And so Paul continues in verses 36 and 37, which says, though we may be like sheep for the slaughter, meaning as a sheep, are, we are incapable, helpless in times of our hardship. Yet Paul says, we are more than conquerors through Christ's love for us. Or to put it in another way, when we have Christ or God's love with us, we become like super conquerors, meaning we become one who will keep on winning despite of the hard and difficult situations we may face. In other words, when we grasp, when we fully embrace the unchanging character of God's love for us, that is what will enable us to actually overcome and be victorious and triumph over whatever hardship we may encounter. And so Paul concludes in, the ver in verses 38 to 39 and him further magnifying the truth that nothing indeed can influence or vary or lessen the degree of God's love towards us. No one, no degree of hardship, not even any of the extremes of our existence can affect the love of God. Whether it be death or life, we will be in God's presence. Not even the supernatural beings, both good and fallen angels, can change God's commitment to love us. Even the element of time, nor space, nor any power of any kind, whether it be physical or spiritual, none of these can thwart, nor can alter, nor can distance us from the perfect love of God. And so here lies the third truth or principle that we can learn about God's character in light of our salvation that can secure us even in our affliction and that, that God is loving and pursues us relentlessly. In light of our salvation, we can be secured even in our affliction because God is loving and He pursues us relentlessly. See, the Bible tells us that God is love, which means that His love is a perfect kind. It is not based on emotion, one that never fluctuates nor is changed by any given situation. God's love is constant. It is a love that is steadfast and will certainly last. I love what Richard Halverson said. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. There is nothing you can do to make God love you less. His love is unconditional, impartial, 
everlasting, infinite, and perfect. One time I remember I was having this conversation with my wife and I was surprised out of the blue. She suddenly came up and asked, do you love me? Of course, I happily replied and said, yes, of course. And the next question was, why? I was quite surprised, was unprepared for that. And I simply responded, you know what? I don't have a good reason. You know why? I asked. And she replied and responded also and said, why? And I answered and said, because my love for you is unconditional. You know, I wonder if ever we would also ask God why he loves us. Perhaps he would respond the same way. That in the same manner, he doesn't need a reason to love. He simply loves us because he is love. And his love is a love that will never let go. I love this newsletter I have read from Rick Edsel. And this is what he writes. Know that God's love touches every part of our lives. Nothing, no calling or circumstance or adversity or advancement, no pain or promotion, no status or station, escapes the brush strokes of God's love. God's love bleeds into every fabric and fiber of our lives. We can't escape His love. He continues, we are like the little boy who got separated from his mother in the mall. He was looking around for his mommy and getting scared. He began to cry because everyone was a stranger and everything looked so confusing and every store was packed and he didn't have his mommy. Suddenly, his mother found him and picked him up. Immediately, his eyes began to dry. Not because his surroundings were changed, but because of whose arms he was in. When you have someone who loves holding you, it doesn't matter anymore what everyone else does or what the circumstances are or what the future holds. When you are in the arms of a loving God, when you have been consumed with his love, you know you are okay. In the same way, in whatever affliction or challenge or trouble we may be, when we understand and remember how much the love of God remains and stays and will never change, that will be our encouragement to move forward. That will be our encouragement to make sure and secure us no matter the circumstance that we are in. See, as believers, we have a very profound and deep truth that sets us apart from the world. And that is the guaranteed eternal salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. How often do we reflect on this truth? What impact has it made in our everyday life? Was it ever something that you ponder or perhaps look back whenever you, try, whenever you are in trying times? When we face times of affliction, remember to look back to our salvation as it should become our springboard to recognize that we have a future hope that is awaiting us, that is way much better, way more than even the affliction that we face. Therefore, even if our times and circumstances change, 
because we have an unchanging God, we can be secured and assured being in His loving arms, no matter our situation while we are still here on earth. The fact that God can guarantee and secure a need in our life that is far and beyond us even now, how much more can He not assure and secure to also meet our needs in this temporary life with the troubles that you and I may be facing? Therefore, in times of our troubles and our afflictions, remember that we can be secured in the truths that God is gracious and He provides for us generously. Remember that God is forgiving and He pardons us completely. And remember that God is loving and He will pursue us relentlessly. Would you join me as we pray? Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you, O God, that because of how you have given us Jesus Christ, we have an eternal hope, one that is guaranteed, one that will never change. And for that, O Lord, as you have demonstrated your character in the eternal security that you have given us, we pray that these truths that we see in your character is what will also encourage us and secure us in this life, no matter the circumstance, no matter the troubles, no matter the afflictions, as long as we are reminded that your love will never be separated from us. Therefore, we can always look up in joy, in peace, and in hope. May your name, O Lord, be honored and be glorified. May your people be edified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.